Let's take our Bibles and go to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah in the Old Testament and chapter 20. We're going to look at just one verse as our text, but then keep your Bible open here to the 20th chapter of Jeremiah. We'll look at a number of verses in this chapter as well as a few in some surrounding chapters in just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 20, and as our text, verse number 9, Jeremiah is speaking. He says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. No matter how hard man works at it, this world is never going to be a perfect place. Now, man works pretty hard at it. Uh, the medical field, the politicians, the sociologists, the psychologists, religion, everybody's working to try to make this a, a place where we can live, be happy, raise our families, pursue happiness, whatever all those things that we desire are. And man works at trying to create this perfect environment, this utopia in which we can live. But it's never going to happen. Now, at one time, the world was perfect. When God created this world, He stood, stood back on the sixth day and He saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. So at one time, this world was a perfect place, but we read just a few verses later in chapter 3 of Genesis that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Hath God said ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shalt thou touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve directly disobeyed the command of God. God had said in Genesis 2, Of all the trees in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So now Adam and Eve directly disobey that command and as a result are separated from God. And in Genesis 3, after that sin, God said, Because thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree, which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shouldest not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So you and I know tonight that all of the disease, all of the destruction, all of the division, all of the devastation, and even death itself is a result of sin. We live tonight in a sin-cursed world. And I don't know about you, but when you look around at this world tonight, it's kind of depressing. I mean, it doesn't seem to be getting any better, that's for sure. We seem to live in times of great uncertainty. There is a lot of chaos. There seems to be so much confusion about what is right and wrong. 
It just seems like when you watch the news or you even listen to people talk, it just seems like a day in which everything's kind of coming apart. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, God said in verse 1, This know also, in the last days perilous times shall come. The word perilous there is an interesting word. In the Greek, it means unraveled. Have you noticed that things seem to be unraveling today? I mean, government seems unraveled. Health experts seem unraveled with this pandemic. Religion is unraveling. 41% of millennials say that when this pandemic ends, they're not going back to church. They've said, we don't need it. We've realized we can live without it. Religion's unraveling. Morals are unraveling. Ethics are unraveling. Everything seems to be unraveling in front of our eyes. And you look around and you say, why is this happening? What is going on? You know, I think Jeremiah is living in very similar days. When you study the life of Jeremiah, you find him in a very chaotic time. A time that's very confusing and very uncertain. And I want to encourage us tonight as we look at Jeremiah's story and we look at our life today, I want to encourage us to set our affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. Because if you look at the things of this earth, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be, you're going to be disheartened. You're going to be despondent and depressed. But when we look unto Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith, we can have great hope. So tonight, let's look at some lessons from the life of Jeremiah that we can apply to our minds today. Notice, first of all, a universal collapse. Now, when we get to Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah is not a young man at this point. He's been around the block a few times, as we say. This is not his first rodeo, okay? Jeremiah has lived for a while. In fact, Jeremiah was alive at the time of Josiah the king. Do you remember Josiah? Josiah was the boy king who came to the throne at the age of eight. Imagine the leader of a country being eight years old. That was Josiah. And it wasn't an easy time to be the leader. His father, Amnon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, had led the nation of Israel into all kinds of idolatrous worship. His father reigned for two years. His grandfather reigned 55 years. So for 57 years, the nation of Israel had rejected the God of heaven and were following all kinds of false gods. And all over the land, there were molten images and carved works and groves and all these things they were worshiping instead of God. So here comes Josiah to the throne in the middle of that. And Josiah, the Bible says, while he was yet young in 2 Chronicles 34, so uh, we're looking at a young boy in the eighth year of his reign. So he's 16 now. The Bible says that Josiah began to seek after the God of David, his father. So he turns his back on his human lineage of Amnon and Manasseh, who've rejected God, and he sets his sights on his spiritual heritage, the God of David, his father. And the first thing that Josiah does as he begins to follow a spiritual track is he says, we got to get back to church. We, we got to assemble. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to meet together as God's people. So Josiah takes some money out of the government treasury and he hires some workers to go into the house of the Lord and repair and amend the house. See, it hasn't been used. God's house was in shambles, hasn't been used for six, fix, uh, six decades now. 
So it's a, it's a wreck. So they take these, these uh, workmen, they go into this house of the Lord, and they begin to clean it up so that God's people can assemble. Well, as they're cleaning and amending the house of God, they found a book. But they didn't know what it was. So they took it to Shaphan, the scribe. And Shaphan reads this book, and he discovers it's God's word. It's the law. It's the Old Testament Torah. And so Shaphan takes this law to Josiah, and he reads it to him. And when Josiah heard the word of God read, the Bible says he rent his clothes, which was symbolic of his humility before the Lord. So now Josiah calls the whole nation together, everybody, men, women, children, young, old, everybody. They all come together, and they read the word of God. Now, that would have taken a while, and they stood while they read it. So be thankful you're sitting tonight. They, they stood, they read the word of God, and when they finished, Josiah stands up as king. And he says, now, ladies and gentlemen, what we've just heard read is the way I'm going to live. And what we've just heard read is the way I'm going to lead. And he caused the people to stand to it. In other words, to agree with him. And all the people stood to it. And for 31 years, Israel experiences one of the greatest revivals on the record of the pages in the Bible. Now, Jeremiah is alive during all that. He watches all that. But Jeremiah lives long enough to see Josiah come off of the throne. And in his place comes Jehoiada. And then Jehoiakim. And then Zedekiah. And these next three kings take the nation of Israel right back into idolatry. And the whole time, Jeremiah, throughout this entire book of Jeremiah, is calling out to them. He's saying, so, stop. Think about what you're doing. We've already been down this road. Let me tell you from my experience, this is not a good experiment. This is not good. Stop. Come back to God. Repent. We need revival. He's, he's calling them back because he's already seen what happens when people forsake God. So all through the book, he's crying out to the people to come back to the Lord. In chapter 2, he said, Thy own wickedness shall correct thee, thy own backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and wicked that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God and hast followed idols. In chapter number four, he says, break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off of your heart. He said, you've become desensitized. You're no longer tender to the things of God. You've got calluses on your heart. In chapter four and verse 22, he says, my people are foolish. They have no knowledge. They're sottish children. They have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Boy, does that sound like today? Amen. Wise to do evil, but to do good, we have no knowledge. I tell you, we in America have gotten really good at corruption. And we've even gotten better at covering it up. But you go on the street today and you ask people, can you quote John 3.16? They go, what? We're wise to evil, but to do good, we have no knowledge. And Jeremiah in chapter number uh, 7 is saying, amend your ways and your doings in verse 3. 
have revival. Come back to God. In chapter 8, he says the wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Lord, they've rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. Our leadership is, is ashamed. Our leadership has no answers. Why? Because they've rejected the word of God. And by the time he comes to chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah's voice is being neglected. And so by the time he gets to chapter 13, he predicts the Babylonian captivity. He says, we've gone too far. We've pushed the envelope, and now we must fall to judgment. In verse 19 of chapter 13, he says, the cities of the south shall be shut up, and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, she should be wholly carried away. In fact, look up at verse 15 of chapter 19. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I've pronounced against it, because they've hardened their necks and that they might not hear my words. They're going into captivity. A universal collapse. And he describes it. Look in chapter 20 and verse 4. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them away captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. And they might have been thinking, That's not going to happen. I mean, come on, Jeremiah. This doom and gloom message is a little bit too much. Jeremiah goes on in verse 5, and he says, I'll deliver all the strength of this city. You, you think you have defense mechanisms in place to guard against this? Forget it. You, you think you have an army that's going to shield you from this happening? It's not happening. Your strength is taken away. He goes on in verse 5, and all the labors are up. You, you think you have a job? You think you have employment? You have a way to make money? No, that's gone. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, and all the, the precious things thereof, all your culture, all your refinement, your theater, your arts, your sports, it's gone. And then he says, and all the treasures of the kings of Judah, your retirement plan, your 401k, your, your federal reserves, your bank accounts, they're gone. This is a universal collapse. And none of this surprises Jeremiah. He's not surprised by it. He's been seeing it coming. He's, he's read the handwriting on the wall. They rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected the word of God. And Jeremiah said, we're going to collapse. We're going to collapse. You've got to turn back. And they said, nah, you're, 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 you're foolish. And so now, as the nation is taken captive, none of this surprises Jeremiah. He's seen it coming. But what does surprise him is number two. Not only a universal collapse, but we see an unrelenting criticism. You see, Jeremiah is not surprised that the nation is collapsing. What's surprising him is that he's getting blamed for it. Now, if you're paying attention at all today, it seems like it is the people who are doing right that are getting blamed for the wrong. It seems like those Bible-believing Christians in America are the problem. We're the ones that have issues. 
We're, we're the ones that are deplorable. We're the ones that, that, that need some, some, some training in some areas. Why? Because we're getting blamed for all the problems. And that's exactly what's happening here. In fact, look at, look at verse number 1 of chapter 20. It says, Now Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So we're introduced in verse 1 to this man named Pashur, and the Bible describes him as a priest. We know Jeremiah is a prophet. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest and a prophet were quite different in what they were assigned to do by God. In other words, they had a different role. They, they, they had a different task, no question. But if you were to place a, a flow chart of authority in the Old Testament, you'd obviously have God, Jehovah at the top. But as you would build this flow chart of authority for the people of Israel, I think you'd have to put the priest and the prophet on the same line. Even though their roles were different, it would be like maybe two vice presidents in a company under the president. They might have different roles within the company, but they would both have equal authority. For example, in the Old Testament, when God wanted to speak to the people, they didn't have a Bible like we do. We're, we started tonight saying, open your Bible. Why? Because that's our authority, right? God's given us His Word. But in the Old Testament, they didn't have a book, the Bible, in its complete form, so God would often speak to the people through a priest or a prophet, sometimes through a king, but most often through a priest and a prophet. Those were the voice boxes, so to speak, of God to the people. So if you were putting this on a flow chart of authority, you'd have to put these two men on kind of the same line. Okay, so Jeremiah comes into this territory of Pashur, and he begins to preach this doom and gloom message of captivity, and Pashur doesn't like it. So he takes things into his own hands. And the Bible says in verse number 2, he smote Jeremiah. The word smote there in the Hebrew carries the connotation of smiting with the hand or smiting with a, an instrument, a rod or something. So there's physical abuse. Then it says he put him in stocks and set him at the high gate of Benjamin. So he places his feet, after beating him, he places his feet in stocks so he can't go anywhere and he's positioned at the high gate of Benjamin. The high gate of Benjamin was the entry and exit point into the city, so now all the people can go by and laugh at him and deride him and mock him. In fact, look at verse number 7. Jeremiah says, um, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me in a derision daily. So here's Jeremiah. He's been defrocked. He's been degraded. He's, he's made fun of. He's getting blamed for all these problems. And Jeremiah doesn't understand this. Did you notice what he said there in verse 7? He said, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. He's saying, God, you lied to me. God, you didn't, you didn't put this in the contract. This isn't in my job description. You told me to go preach your word. You told me, thus saith the Lord, and go out there and preach it. I did. And, and, and for that, I, I'm the one that gets blamed? God, this isn't right. 
This isn't fair. I don't deserve this. I'm just the messenger. I'm not the problem. But Jeremiah, he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why he's being persecuted for doing what's right. See, Jeremiah doesn't have the ability like we would have tonight to go into the New Testament and read words of Paul like, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He never read that verse because it didn't exist. He couldn't read the words of Peter where he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. He couldn't even read the words of Jesus where he said, If the world hate you, you know it hated me before it hated you. Right? So Jeremiah is confused. Jeremiah doesn't understand. He's saying, God, why is this happening? I'm not the problem. Your people have rejected you. They've, they've forsaken you. They've run astray into idolatry. And yet I'm getting blamed for this captivity. And Jeremiah is quitting. Verse 9, we read it. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah says, God, this isn't fair. You, you didn't tell me about this. This isn't right. By the way, none of what has happened to Jeremiah is legal. In the Old Testament, there were, on occasions, false prophets. When there was someone preaching, as we would say today, or prophesying in the Old Testament, and, and there was a question about what he was saying, you could report that message to the high priest. If a, if a person was accused of being a false prophet, the message was taken to the high priest, he would convene a group of priests, they would review the message, and if it was deemed to be false, that person was removed from his office. But none of that's being done here. This is one man in power who says, I'm taking things into my hand. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to destroy this individual, Jeremiah. So none of it's legal. It's just one guy with power trying to shut down the message of God. See, the devil thinks that if he can bring enough pressure to God's people, he can stop the message. The, the devil thinks in his mind, if I can persecute God's people enough, they'll quit. The devil, the devil doesn't want people in church. The devil loves it when the church is closed. The, de the devil loves it when parking lots are empty, when the pulpit is silent. The devil loves it when the church is not doing its work on earth. The devil loves that. So the devil thinks if I can bring enough pressure on God's people, they'll weaken and they'll quit and I stop the message. But the devil has a very bad memory because I want you to see thirdly tonight an underlying condition. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, I want you to look at it carefully again. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, period. Now, I don't know how much time elapses between that period and the next word. Maybe it's a couple seconds. Maybe it was a few minutes. Maybe it was several hours. Personally, I think it was days. I believe Jeremiah wrote that first sentence of verse 9, and he put the right instrument down. 
rolled up the scroll, tied it, shoved back from the table, walked out the door with no anticipation of returning. He just gave his resignation. I'm out. I'm done. This isn't fair. It's not right. I quit. You say, Brother Gage, how do you, what, what brings you to that conclusion that it was several days? Well, the rest of the verse. But, verse 9, his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shot up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing. I could not stay. You don't get weary after a couple seconds of anything. You could be doing the, doing the worst possible task, and you don't get weary of it after a couple of seconds. You don't get weary of something after a few minutes. You get weary of something after hours or even days or weeks. So think about this. Jeremiah's done. He's quitting. It's over. I'm not going to do this anymore. He walks out of the room. But God's word was in his heart like a burning fire. And he got weary with, with doing nothing. He got weary with staying. He got weary with quitting. He said, I've got to go back. There's another chapter to write. There's more to be written in the story of Israel. I've got to go back. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are saved tonight, if you are born again tonight, you have something living inside of you. He's called the Holy Spirit of God. And that fire never leaves us nor forsakes us. And regardless of the pressure or the persecution, we cannot stop assembling. We cannot stop reading our Bible. We cannot stop praying. We cannot stop supporting missionaries. We cannot stop the work of God. It doesn't matter what the pressure is. We must return to doing what God's commanded us to do. When I was in college, there was hardly a day in chapel. We had chapel every day. And we'd have preachers come from across America to preach to us. And there was hardly a day where a preacher did not stand up when I was in college and say, the United States of America will never make it to July 4th, 1976. We'll never see our 200th birthday. We're too far gone. And there were a lot of reasons to believe that. I... Um, I went to public school. I, I, did, I did not go to kindergarten. Um, I was raised in Watertown, Wisconsin. Watertown, Wisconsin is the home of America's first kindergarten. I don't know if you knew this, but you do now. Uh, if you go to Watertown, Wisconsin, you can visit the little building in which the first kindergarten was ever taught. It's behind the Octagon House. The Octagon House is an eight-shaped, eight-sided uh, house that's there in Watertown, a historical building. And right behind is a little frame building. That's where the first kindergarten was taught in 1848. But when I went to school, they didn't have kindergarten. I'm older than you think. <laughs> so I went to public school, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. And in first, second, third, fourth grade in my public school, up in the corner of the classroom, there was a little speaker. And every morning, the bell would ring, and a voice would come over that speaker was the principal of our school. And he would say, good morning, boys and girls. I hope you're all seated at your desk because I want to read a verse out of the Bible to you. And he'd read a verse. Didn't comment on it per se, just read a verse, maybe sometimes a, a familiar one, sometimes one that we as kids didn't know well. But he'd read a verse. And then he'd say, now, I want every boy and every girl to bow your head, close your eyes, 
Hold your hands on top of your desk because I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask the Lord to give us a good day. And you pray. First grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade. Every morning, same drill. Fifth grade, same school. Speaker's still in the corner. But it was only used for announcements. Because in 1962 and 1963, prayer and Bible reading were taken out of the public school. And so that was illegal. And a lot of people in America saw that as a watershed moment. A lot of people thought, this is not good for our country. We're, we're taking God and the Bible away from our children. The future cannot be good. And a lot of people saw that as the beginning of the end. And of course, right behind that decision in the mid-60s came the rock music culture into America. Boy, I remember that. I came to school, sixth grade one day, and everybody was talking about the Beatles. Well, I, I, I'd seen Beatles on the farm, but they were talking about a different kind of Beatle. And I really didn't understand because I missed the Ed Sullivan show. I didn't see this rock group perform that Sunday night on television because I was in church. And so, man, that thing swept across the school and everybody was, was now hungering after this new music that had come into America. And right behind it came the sexual revolution. And then we had the riots. We had the destruction. Out here in L.A., the Watts riots. Kent State University, burning buildings, riding in the streets. And then we had inflation. Oh, man, we talk about inflation today. Wow. The first car I bought where I had to get a loan, I had some cars that were junk cars that my dad gave me or whatever to drive. But when I bought my first car, 1972 Datsun, used car, I had to get a loan. And so I went to the bank, got a loan for that car. Interest was 18.5%. My payment was $48.50. And 42 cents a month. And the car didn't work <laughs> most of the time. My wife and I bought our first house in LaPorte, Indiana. We paid $26,000 for our first house. It's probably the nicest house we've ever lived in. Not the biggest, but, but probably the nicest house we've ever lived in. A little Cape Cod building, a little house on Weller Avenue in LaPorte, Indiana. We paid $26,000. We got a loan. And uh, our payment was $173.57 a month. 10.5% interest. And I remember we made our first payment. I remember writing that check, 173.57, sent it to the bank. And then I got my amortization schedule. I got that thing out because I wanted to see how much equity I now had in my house. And after that first payment, I had 17 cents. Everything else went to interest. I now own 17 cents of that house. Man, I hit the big time. We sold that house eight year, uh, 10 years later for $34,000. Made $8,000 on that first house. Amazing times. Gas shortages. Remember those? Oh, my soul. I was, I was holding revivals in those days, pulling a trailer, uh, traveling with my family, pulling a trailer, 16,000-pound trailer behind a truck. And, but there were no gas stations open on Saturday or Sunday. I was holding meetings Sunday to Friday, traveling on Saturday to get to the next church, but there were no gas stations open. I had, 20, I had two 20-gallon tanks of gas on that truck. I had five five-gallon gas cans in the back of the truck full of gas so that when I ran out, I could, I could refill. 
I had two 30-pound uh, tanks of propane, 60 pounds of propane. I mean, if somebody would have hit us on the highway, we would have destroyed America. We, we were a moving bomb. And I remember thinking in those days, this will get people's attention. Now people will come back to church. Now people get right with God. This, we can't do this forever. This is going to bring revival. But instead, people were shooting each other in the gas lines to move up a spot. Amazing times. Confusing, uncertain, chaotic. And Jeremiah is going through this time in his life where he's wondering, God, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to be faithful to your word. I'm trying to be true to what you say. And yet all, underneath all of this, there's a fire burning in his heart that says, I can't quit. You see, the devil thinks I can apply this pressure and God's people will quit. But remember I said he has a bad memory. The devil thought when they sealed that stone, outside, uh, that tomb outside of Jerusalem and set that Roman guard, the devil thought, I've stopped him. I've stopped him. He's dead. But he forgot that the one behind that stone was the one who said, I'm the resurrection and the life. See, the devil laughed that day when they pulled the apostle Paul's body outside the city and left him for dead. The devil went, yes, now we'll hear this babbler no more. But all of a sudden, that body began to move. And Paul stood up. And he shook the dust off his feet. And later he said, though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day they shook their bony fingers in the face of Peter and John in the book of Acts and they said, you will never say the name Jesus Christ again. You got it? <laughs> Peter said, we could not but speak the things that we had both seen and heard. You see, the devil thinks, I'll apply pressure and they'll quit. But Jesus promised, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And into us, he placed the Holy Spirit of God at salvation. And that fire burns tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And don't let it go out. I remember July 4th, 1976. I started a revival that morning in El Paso, Texas. We had a good service that morning. Good crowd. Excitement. I was staying in a little room there in the church right on the property and that afternoon I spent the afternoon there prepared for the evening. Went in Sunday night, again, great crowd returned, wonderful spirit, real liberty to preach. But my heart was heavy because, I'll be honest, I drank the Kool-Aid. I thought, this is the last day. This is it. By midnight tonight, we're goners. I don't know how it's going to happen. Russia's going to send over a missile and we're going to explode. I, I, I didn't know how it was going to happen. But I had heard all my life that we weren't going to make it to our 200th birthday. And here we were, July 4th, 1976. And I thought, this is my last time to preach. I honestly believe that. When the service ended, people left. And I went back to that room, changed clothes. And I decided to go on a walk. And I began to walk the streets of El Paso. Now, I, I, I probably wouldn't recommend that today. El Paso is a, a very long city, east to west. If you've ever driven through it, I drove through it here a couple of weeks back, Went uh, going to Louisiana to preach in New Orleans and 
I drove through and I, I actually timed it to see how long it would take to drive across El Paso. And it was in the middle of the night, about 2 in the morning. It took me 50 minutes to get from the western city limit sign to the eastern city limit sign. It's a long city, not very wide, north to south, but very long. Along our Mexican border there, the great city of Juarez, just over the border. And I began to walk that, those streets that night. And I began to pray. Now, I didn't know much about prayer. I'm not sure I know a lot about prayer today. But I just said, Lord, I know we're a mess. I, I know as Americans, we don't deserve your grace. We've blown it. We're a Christian nation. And by the way, we are. Children, understand something. The phrase on your, on your, your dollar bills and your, your coins where it says, in God we trust, we didn't make that up 10 years ago. The words in God we trust were on the Mayflower sails when they came across the Atlantic. Those were the words on the sails. They would have never made it to America. The pilgrims would have never made it here if it wouldn't have been for William Brewster. William Brewster was a preacher on board the Mayflower. And he had brought a printing press with him. Who brings a printing press on a boat? Well, he brought a printing press to print Bibles in the new land. And when the main, the main beam on the sails cracked in the middle of that ocean, they took the screw out of the printing press and repaired the main sail. That's how they got here. Because there was a preacher who was coming to print God's Word. There are 93 references to God in the Bible in the U.S. Constitution. We're a Christian nation. When I was a teenager, I dug graves in a little, little cemetery about three miles from our farm, River Road Cemetery. I'd cut the grass every week. I dug the graves. I don't know if you know this, but in American history, graves in cemeteries lie east to west. They're not dug north to south. They're dug east to west. Now, today, people are being cremated and graves are being stacked and lots of different concerns with, with death and things like that now. But in our heritage, you go to a cemetery, the graves are east and west. And when you dig a grave and you arrange for the casket to be lowered and so on, the casket is lowered so that the head of the person who's in the casket is always on the west end of the grave. That's American tradition. That's American heritage. Why? What's the big deal? Because Jesus is coming back. The men sang about it a minute ago. He's coming back. He's coming out of the eastern sky. So when you come up out of the grave, you want to meet him. You don't want to be backwards. You might think you're leaving and shut the door. So, so he, you, want to be, you want to be rising to meet him in the air, right? That's what we always say. And so we dug the graves in America east to west with the head at the west so that when the saved would come out of those graves, they could meet the Lord. See, that's America. We don't, we don't teach that anymore, but that's America. We're a long ways from that stuff tonight. And we were in 1976. And I thought, Lord, we, we, we've blown it. We deserve judgment. But Lord, if I could just ask for a little more time. I mean, I'm just a young guy just getting started. I'm, I love preaching these revivals. I, I, I'd love to do a little more of this. 
And Lord, my wife and I, we're just, we're just newly married. We'd like to have some children, see if maybe we could raise them to serve you. Lord, can we just have a little more time? And I just walked, I prayed, I talked like that. And I looked at my watch. It was 12.05. I said, hey, it's after midnight. It's, it's July 5th. We're still here. I'm still here. It, it didn't happen. It's, it's July 5th. It's, it's, we're past our 200th birthday. And then I thought, yeah, but I'm on, I'm on mountain time. Maybe God's on Pacific time. I better keep praying. And so I kept walking, kept praying. And 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. I got back to that church about 5 o'clock, just as the sun was coming up over that eastern horizon on El Paso. And God did not speak to me in an audible voice. He never has. But I remember what he said to me in here. And I share it with you tonight. God said, son, you be faithful with every day I give you and let me take care of the calendar. Could I encourage you with that thought tonight? God's got the calendar. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He's got that. That's him. Our job is to be faithful. And just as Jeremiah in a very difficult time and just as others through the pages of history have had to live in times of persecution and distress and confusion and chaos, we are a generation that God has chosen to do the same. May we be faithful. We can control that. By the way, go home tonight or this week, read the rest of the book of Jeremiah. You know what you're going to learn? When they got to Babylon, they were carried away. When they got to Babylon, you know what God told them to do? He said, now, build a house, plant a garden, get married, and have some kids, and, and, and then marry your kids off. That's what he told them to do. Now, why would he tell them to do that? You know, when you get to Babylon, go ahead and build a house, plant a garden, get married, have some kids, then give away your children in marriage. You know what he was telling them? Just do the things you're supposed to do. Just be faithful. I got the calendar. I'm taking care of that. I'm going to bring you back out of Babylon. And he did, right? And in the meantime, in the midst of this horrible persecution of captivity, he said, you just do what you're supposed to do. Just live your life and be faithful to me. And that's what God would have us do tonight, to just be faithful. And may we determine tonight to not let this fire go out of our life, but may we continue in these days God has given to us.